www.dotif, integrative and preventive healthcare. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this conversation belong solely to the respective individual speakers and is a representation of their respective individual experiences only. Hey guys, I'm Tasha. Hey listeners, this is Guni, and we're here to discuss lifestyle medicine. So we are back from our break and we are so excited about today's conversation. We've been approached by the South Asian Heritage Organization in the UK. We've been invited to host an episode on the focus of Sri Lanka. Since Tasha and I both have a Sri Lankan heritage, we just jumped on the opportunity. So I'm a first generation Swiss and my parents are Sri Lankan Sinhalese. And I am a second generation Malaysian with Sri Lankan Tamil grandparents. So as you can see from the Sri Lankan diaspora has different shapes and form and that's what we love about it and we want to celebrate it together today with our guests. So the way we want to approach this first special episode which is opening our season we've invited two guests who have Sri Lankan heritage to discuss with us what does it mean for them to be part of the Sri Lankan diaspora. Yes and so our first guest is Gaya Gamhewage she is a medical doctor who works with the World Health Organization and she's based in Switzerland. She holds a master's degree in international health and international policy making and negotiation. Guy is also the co-founder of the social enterprise, The Wisdom House, where she combines her wealth of professional experience with her passion to help people learn and grow. So welcome, Gaia, to Dot of the Podcast and this special episode. Thank you, Tasha. Thank you, Guni. Lovely to be here. And our second guest is Nibana Kanadasan. She is a BACP accredited psychotherapist. She currently works with survivors of rape and sexual assault within the NHS and is also a trustee at Anbu UK, which is a, a charity working with survivors of child sexual abuse in the Tamil community. Nibana is also working on her current doctoral research, focusing on bridging the acculturation gap between generations within the Tamil community following migration from Sri Lanka to the UK. Welcome Nibana to Dot of the Podcast and to this very special episode. Thank you. Thank you both. I guess we want to kick off the conversation today, start with understanding your, your history about how you grew up. Maybe I can start with Gaia. You know, you grew up in London. How did your Sri Lankan-ness translate in your, your daily life? My family moved to London when I was about seven years old, so in the 70s. Obviously, my, my education, my primary and secondary education were in the UK. So the UK culture, if you like, had a big influence on me as well. But Asian culture is very strong and it's very strong at home with your parents. I remember my, my childhood in Sri Lanka from you know, um, starting school there, having friends there. I think the one thing that my parents really took with them when they went to England was a sense of uh, family, a very strong sense of family, family duty, family responsibility, a very, very um, strong importance attached to education and educational achievement. My goodness, uh, my mother was a teacher <laughs> and her mother was a headmistress. So discipline um, in all things, but really uh, being really pushed for high levels of academic achievement. These were the two, if you like, uh, things that I think they brought with us. And that meant we worked very hard at school and we were different from the local kids. You know, kids in the UK, they played and they, they wanted to do other things. Uh, whereas um, we were very, very focused. We were four siblings. I was the eldest. And that sense of family duty meant as the eldest child, I took care of everybody else. I really was very responsible. 
by the age of 10, I think I was taking care of my two sisters and brother. I, I could cook, clean, you know, be responsible. That was, I think, what that transferred to the point I remember one of my teachers at a parents' conference told my parents, you know, Gaia's excellent. She's, you know, she's very smart. She now needs to learn how to play. And I remember my mother looking really confused. I mean, what is this teacher? <laughs> so, <laughs> but also we had to remember in the 70s when I was there, uh, the UK was, uh, was not the UK today. It was extremely uh, racist. It was sexist. So, you know, we felt protection in our family because outside sometimes, out, not in school, but outside school, uh, that was a period when the National Front was coming up. Uh, I hope you don't mind if I'm very frank here, but really anybody my color was called Paki. So, uh, you know, that made us actually retreat more into education and discipline and achievement because there was a sense of rejection from the host society at that moment, um, from the general public, but definitely not our neighbors or our teachers, but, but you could see there was a threat to us when we walked on the road. So it was, it was bittersweet and interesting. And I think our culture and the qualities we brought with it gave me refuge and gave me direction during quite a, a really uh, interesting, but, but also challenging time. As you were speaking, Guy, I could really relate to the core things that you were talking around family and education, because those are the two sort of themes that popped up for me. I started, I was born in Germany and spent my first decade there. And there you could definitely in the late 80s, early 90s feel minoritized and the difference. And I think there was also spaces where you know that refugees and asylum seekers were, and then the schools where you had a couple of people in there, whereas my experience in London was very, very different. By the time I started sort of the end of primary school and secondary school, it was interestingly enough because of academia, predominantly South Asian, the school that I went to. So I think for seven years, academia education was also a safe haven because it was almost safety in people looking like you and it wasn't a thing anymore. I didn't feel different and it's such an interesting experience to have compared to Germany where you could feel it. You could feel that your colour meant something or the fact that you didn't look like other people meant something and how you show up is so different to how I then showed up in London where I felt comfortable, I was okay to explore, but definitely had experiences of code switching a lot at home. You were studying, you were taking responsibilities, uh, have a younger sister, so taking responsibility for her. And then at school, you were this independent woman and I went to a girls' school and it was really promoted to say, you know, you're independent, you can do free thinking, whatever you want, the world is your oyster and holding both values. And I think now in my thirties, I can definitely hold both and say like, I see value. But I think during teenage years, it's, it was tricky, I think, holding both identities because they felt worlds apart at times. I guess from a Malaysian perspective, it's also interesting because our constitution is very racist in its own way. Um, and so when Sri Lankan Tamil kids are born, you try not to, you, you say Indian because there's like boxes where you have to tick, right? What, what's your race? Malay, Chinese, Indian, and others are your option. And so Sri Lankan Tamils, at some point, they were known as Ceylonese. And so they, they would come from Sri Lanka and they work in the railways because they were better educated. And so if you were to put others, then you would get lesser privileges in the country as a whole. But if you put Indians, then you have some level of privilege compared to those who are not classified. But, you know, you lose a bit of your identity in that process. But internally in my house, I'm like, I'm Sri Lankan because I eat Sri Lankan time food. And I'm, you know, we all have Sri Lankan Tamil rituals. But it's interesting because externally, you don't really like feel like you're openly discriminated against. But, you know, you know that there's a underlying notion about that, right? 
how does it feel like being Sri Lankan and what makes you proud of being Sri Lankan? So um, in Sri Lanka, when I first started school at five, I remember the first day, it was a girl's school, uh, like Nibarna, it was a girl's school in Sri Lanka. And it had 5,000 girls. I mean, it, it was massive. It was called Vishaka Vidyale. So it's massive school. And I remember going to the first assembly and, you know, like very, this very small person <laughs> in this massive sea of, you know, uh, white because we're wearing this white uniform. And I remember the first person of authority outside my home I saw was a woman coming onto the stage. She was the principal. And Sri Lanka was an, on a high at that time because our first, the world's first democratically elected prime minister a woman prime minister was Sri Lankan in 1972. And um, she, uh, she sort of inspired and, and, and reaffirmed that men and women had, you know, could achieve similar things. And our principal was a woman who actually sit, looked a little like our prime minister as well. And I remember her coming on the stage and I, I can't remember all of her speech, but at five, something stuck out to me. She said, uh, you know, she she spoke about how women, how girls can achieve anything they want. Said if you want to be a pilot, you want to be a doctor, you want whatever you want to be, you can do it. And this is the place that will nurture you to do it. And I remember that that was so uh, profound for me, um, and it has lived with me. Um, until now, I'm I'm 57 now. <laughs> it's it's still here five five decades plus later. So I, I think that was really important. And then that was echoed in my family. My my father, uh, my mother, of course, you know, always thought we should do the best of everything. You know, her children should be the best. But my dad, I could see the respect he gave to me was no different than any respect he gave to anybody else. He, he totally respected me, although I was a girl and I was a little girl any major decision in our family, I remember my dad asking my opinion, shall we buy this house? Shall we buy this thing? Shall we do that? And I remember at 10, my, my most cherished gift in my life was a typewriter. We didn't have computers then, by the way, this was a long time ago. <laughs> I remember a little portable brother computer. And, and it was the most empowering thing. What I'm really proud of Women are respected in our society. I'm talking about a general rule. That does not mean there is no domestic violence or anything like that. But there is position and there is respect. I'm a, I'm a Buddhist. So there's respect for a mother. So, you know, there's a respect for a woman, a mother. That's a really important aspect of the culture. Qualities of kindness, compassion, uh, patience, all of these things. You know, in Sri Lanka, is also very multicultural. We celebrate everybody's uh, celebrations. I mean, we have 30 plus holidays a year in Sri Lanka. Um, and the other thing I'm proud of is that, you know, Sri Lanka is has been extraordinary. I mean, if you look at where we started in 1948 and uh, the current period notwithstanding, how we managed to develop our country. You know, we have one of the highest literacy rates in the world. We have some of the lowest maternal mortality, child mortality rates in the world. So if you look at public health, if you look at education, which shows how a society is functioning, these are absolutely, I mean, amazing for such uh, you know, what we were a low income country, then we became a lower middle income country. And unfortunately, due to bad governance, we have gone back uh, into a major crisis today. And that speaks to our ability to work quite hard. Anywhere around the world where I've been and I've met Sri Lankans or I hear other story, uh, people, stories from other people who are not Sri Lankan talking about Sri Lankans, they can appreciate that, that Sri Lankans are survivors. You know, they go anywhere and because of their their appreciation for uh, education, they've 
they will do anything in their power to educate their kids. So they will work five jobs, six jobs, you know, whatever it takes to make sure that their kids are educated. I can definitely resonate with, I think, the education, that knowledge is power and that being drilled in really early on. And I think for me, what always stands out is uh, my mum is uh, one of 11, which I don't think is uncommon in her space, but it's a huge family nonetheless. And going back to her family home in Jaffna, I think is probably when I really feel rooted or belong somewhere. You hear stories about what happened in childhood and who was doing what and which brother was doing this. But actually, I think being in the place where the stories happened and they have a little soap company, which is a social enterprise. So I think being there and the company still running in its small form and you get to, um, see how it's made and be in touch with history I think is what really connects me and makes me quite proud to be part of it particularly in summers when the Nalu festival is happening and you get to go temple and you see that sense of community which I think is huge and if you're not careful you're probably swept away in the crowds and get lost unless you know your way back but I love that I think that sense of community that happens as rituals as traditions that everybody knows what food you're getting or where to go to get the best peanuts and I think that there's pockets of that here in London and I think all over the world where there's temples and religious places where people come together as a community but yes it's about prayer and it's about spirituality and at the same time it's about coming together and finding those safe havens for people to do that again so I think I like going back to Sri Lanka to see where it happens and where it's come from and it's a beautiful country I think if we're thinking nature wise and we're thinking preservation wise there's something quite peaceful, I think, being by the sea and it being an island. And I think for me, that always brings a sense of pride, despite, I think, what happens with people and man-made things, that there's something quite natural. But yeah, I always like going back there. So for me, it's probably there. How spirituality has a space in the country, regardless of social conflict. And I think that's what I feel the most uh, proud and that richness of knowledge from those different religion and how it's translated in spirituality is something that I foster uh, wherever I am in the world. And, and that is for me very linked to my roots and how they're able to, in terms of spirituality, navigate uh, among each other. But, you know, um, I think the moment I was the least proud of being Sri Lankan and you might, you know, sometimes shy away from, from even saying it was when I had peer mates who were Sri Lankan Tamils and I was not able to articulate what was happening and the civil war, what, what this government was doing. And so I felt ashamed and didn't know what to do. And there was this divide that was created so early on between two children that was just barely five years old. It's only now with growth and understanding of history. And like recently, we're actually supporting each other. So we were able to come together later on. But it's true that as a very start, when, you know, the civil war was quite, quite strong, it was something that I was uh, was not very proud of. Yeah. And for you, Tasha, what do you feel the least proud? There's this term, Sidonese, right? Actually, for the longest time, I was completely blind and this this the nuance to that term because I think my parents sheltered me and like but maybe my early 20s and I would hang out with different types of Indian people in Malaysia and they're like oh what's your like background and I'm like we're Sri Lankan Tamils and and then everyone would have this reaction like oh you're Ceylonese oh you think you're better than us and that was the first interaction where I realized that term was actually not 
really received well because Ceylonese people in Malaysia were associated with being more snobby and more prestigious. And so then they would look down on Tamil Indians or other Sri Lankans who are not Ceylonese. And so then I realized, oh my God, I need to not use this term. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm Indian. And I would never share that part of me until I was really close to someone and I knew that they would be able to accept that. What about you, Nibana? Do you feel like there's a, a moment in your life where you feel least proud about being Sri Lankan? Or- yeah, it's a good question. And I think I'm always wary of how I articulate this because I guess it's, again, something that I put language to much later in my life as I was developing as a therapist. And I think I got the tools because much like you were saying, Guniak, and you, Tasha, that I was very much sheltered from that. Being born in Germany, we were really close with other people that had migrated, other families from Sri Lanka and that didn't have an ethnic discrimination or base on that. And I think there was that refugees and asylum seeking coming together to build a community again. And it wasn't probably till my late teens, I think around 2009, actually, when there was protests happening in London there. And I was sort of like, oh, hang on a minute. This is a part of my identity that maybe I haven't formed a relationship with yet because I parents as most parents were quite protective that you need to be studying your education is really important so the politics would never showed up until I did my own research and I found out and then you also had what media was consuming and telling you and you sort of like oh where do I stand in this it wasn't too much later that I think I put language to things and I think what I'm least proud of is probably the lack of accountability for the genocides and the war crimes that happened over such a long period of time and also as a result a lot of migration and a lot of fragmentation and displacement that happened that I guess I see on the other side in second generations or third generations when you're working with that fragmentation and when parents are working off of intergenerational trauma and then you really see how seeped in it is that it didn't just happen to a generation you know thousands of years ago that it's still alive and so for me it's probably the lack of maybe um accountability measures being taken or reparative work and I'm really looking forward hopefully for that to happen one day and I know a lot of work and social activism is going into that space and I'm quite grateful that we're also able to speak speak about it and put dialogue to it as we make our own opinions about it and as we form that which isn't based on maybe media or what he or she said but actually us having friends or having people that we feel safe enough to talk about it with. I think you articulated very well is um, we are also here in a conversation from very diverse backgrounds within the Sri Lankan diaspora and we are telling our own stories and of course it's an individual experience and it's a testimonial that is very unique to our experience and we are not here to speak in behalf of but I think that it's a beautiful um, way to, to share your experience. And Gaia, what, what about you? I think when I was 18 and the, the 1981 riots broke out, I had just come back to Sri Lanka. And uh, I, I was obviously, I had, having grown up in the UK and being subject to racism myself, I was absolutely outraged at what was happening in Sri Lanka. Um, you know, that we could turn on each other this way. But even at that age, I could see that this was politically motivated, right? And it was fueled by centuries of tribal behavior. Basically, there's no other way to describe it. You know, we're very tribal. And even within, um, say, if you take the Sinhalese, there's a, you know, there was a hierarchical system. I know in the Hindu system, there's a hierarchical system. And, uh, um, and if you look closely, even in that conflict, 
right? I mean, both sides, basically. Uh, there was internal uh, conflict between the different uh, different social groups which, which in, within each side. But I think because of my experience and education in the UK, I could see this for what it was. And I was absolutely, you know, against it at 18. I was vocal about it. And I realized that I would be not the popular voice. So I, I think, you know, of course, we do what we can in the in the immediate aftermath. We helped uh, uh, Tamil family friends to stay secure because the country basically went mad. Absolutely. I was in Colombo. So so and then uh, later on, I worked I worked across what they call the, uh, you know, the dividing line. Uh, I worked actually I did a rehabilitation, psychosocial rehabilitation project for children affected by armed conflict, about 5,000 children, Sinhalese, Muslim, Tamil. And in fact, I was so vocal that I eventually got a grenade in my office and, and threats to kidnap my own children. And I realized I really could not be part of this society. I just hated it with a vengeance. So finally, because of this threat, when I found work and I came to work in Switzerland and then brought my family over, I went the other way. I, I made sure that I did not associate with this kind of clannish behavior. I distanced myself from them. I exposed my children to other things. And one of my proudest moments was when my seven-year-old when we were with a gathering of uh, foreign friends, if you like, they asked, oh, you know, what's your nationality? And my son said uh, he's Sri Lankan. And they said, oh, but what are you, you know, uh, Singhala or Tamil? And he looked at this person and said, I'm Sri Lankan. Mm. Right. So it had been transferred to him that this ethnicity was in the current social um, uh, dynamic. It was dangerous that it was harmful to others. So, so I've been very vocal about this. I'm ashamed of the politics since 1948 and what has happened. And what has happened is not just power and control and corruption, but they've done it through pitting one uh, ethnic group against the other. And that has been done easily because the ethnic groups <laughs> felt they were threatened by the other. And I've seen the atrocities of why well, I was a journalist, actually, uh, when I was very young, before I became a doctor. Uh, I, I've seen the atrocities by both sides. And they're not just defense or security. It, 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 was, it was terrible mutilation of bodies. Both sides, I mean, really, there, there is no excuse for this. And this can only be centuries of tribal behavior. That, that's it. And, uh, and I totally agree with uh, Nirvana. There is no accountability for anything. There is absolutely no accountability. So in a way, with all the great things Sri Lanka has, we still have this island mentality, right? <laughs> Actually, I accompanied my children to Buddhist Sunday school for, what, six years just to make sure the priests don't teach them nationalism, right? <laughs> One day uh, he wanted to paint the Buddhist flag and the Sri Lankan flag. I said, no, no Sri Lankan flag in Buddhism. So, you know, I was extremely, extremely conscious about this. Making sure that, you know, the narrative or, or that some of the Sunday schools for the children actually had, had been more of the teaching of, the, of Buddhism and not, you know, the whole culture and the noise that is around the, the religion. How would you say your Sri Lankan or, or your South Asian heritage has translated in the way you approach your work? I think in many ways, more than I know, probably, I, as I trained and got further into therapy, it's probably when I had to really check myself. 
that I was bringing Western constructs into a collective community and saying, hey, you know, this is Freud, this is um, so-and-so. Whereas actually I had a huge reality check when I started placement as a trainee to be, um, I was lucky enough to work with actually Tamil women that had fled the civil war who were seeking refuge in the UK. And they just throw the whole theory out the window and you're always told to sit in the room with the human, not the theory. And I think having strong women in the therapeutic space saying this is what happened and being able to witness that was such a powerful experience. I didn't need to be doing anything that I had more privilege and power in that space to that I was already taking up. So I think giving back and taking less of an expert position or a clinical position is something that I think I learned really, really early on that how do people think about resilience? How do people think about their own power? And how do you they make that narrative how do they do that storytelling as opposed to giving people the tools of you should try this so have you tried you know grounding techniques yes definitely needed I think when people are in acute trauma or in PTSD but if they've come through the other side there's something about resilience building that I learned from those women and also I did a little bit of an outreach program in Sri Lanka in the northeast as well which is a really interesting experience because again that collective sense came through that the women in Lewisham that I worked with privacy and confidentiality was there what they brought in but they also bump into each other in the waiting room and they'd be like oh I'm going to talk about this today and what did you talk about and it was such an open conversation which you don't see in other settings you sort of avoid eye contact and walk out whereas these women were really about sharing stories sharing wisdom anything that was helpful sharing food you're always told in therapy you know keep the boundaries clean don't exchange anything whereas they would bring food they'd be like i'll try this you're like my daughter's age if i had one and really learning to bring that collective warmth that wasn't so clean and clinical and boundaried i think was one of my the biggest ways that I think I tried to show up in work that we're human first that there's warmth and there's a it's not just one-to-one -one. we're relational every time you walk out a therapy room you're relating to somebody else and how you relate here is just as important out there so I think for me it's that that um the family the community it all comes out and bringing that out in a one-to-one -one space and widening everybody and not just them but me and also learning that they bring so much expertise that um, we're not the experts in the field half the time anyway. I wanted to just first underscore the point Nirvana make. You know, I think we're a product of our cultures and, and we do in our education have to get all the models and the framework and the foundation, right? Whatever it is. And I think it is absolutely important. I mean, you don't want a doctor who's not trained, right? So, I mean, but then you have to bring yourself to work. Um, but I mean, for me, I'm quite, um, I, I believe I'm quite open in my communication. I mean, you, you know when I'm angry and you know when I'm, uh, <laughs> well, you know, you can see all my emotions. Also, I had the benefit of, uh, you know, studying medicine in China. And China is an Asian country. So I, I know in the West, you think, you know, people think, oh, it's communist. And this is, it was one of the warmest, richest, most embracing experiences I've ever had. In fact, being 10 years in China was much warmer, if you like, in the way I was uh, accepted than, than in England. You know, um, so my patients there was a young doctor, I, you know, they'd bring me food. They try to introduce me to their only son to marry them or, you know, completely <laughs> unprofessional. They say, oh, you have big eyes. You know, it was, it was just a, it was just a, a love fest, if you like. But that doesn't mean you were not a professional. 
That doesn't mean you didn't do your job. So I think being socialized there in, as I started medicine, it helped me be warm. And, you know, what we call the bedside manner, which unfortunately is missing and lacking in, in a lot of uh, health professionals today. And uh, then, you know, when I was back in Sri Lanka, it was the same when I was expecting my, my, my daughter. I was, I was a young doctor and I remember the patients would say, come, come to the ward at 12. And they would take turns to bring me food. It wasn't because I didn't That's have so food. Sweet. It's because it's a, it's a blessing to give a pregnant person food, right? And I would secretly take it and eat it and it was delicious, right? So it was, it was, amazing. It was like country food, village food. You know, it didn't blur that line for me. And then as I moved into public health and, and as a manager and a leader, I tried to bring those, those values. So I take my responsibility of helping people around me grow very, very much. Whatever it is, you bring your culture with you. Some of my Western colleagues, I mean, if they see the way I am with my staff now or whether I was with my patients before, they'd be shocked. They'd say, oh, that's not professional. But no, it was professional. It was extremely professional. People are not just a complex of symptoms. There's something else going on in their hearts, in their minds, in their lives. And symptoms are just a red flag. And of course, you have to use all your training and knowledge to figure out what is wrong. But when a person is in front of you, you have to address them holistically as a full person, not as a symptom. And, and I think my, my culture helped me do that. As, as you get older, you also, I don't care where, which culture you're from, you almost don't care. You just want to do the right thing, right? <laughs> you want to say, right. yeah, tried that. I've got the foundation, but now I'm going to do it. My only um, rule is don't hurt others. I mean, I'm just looking forward to this point of my life where I really don't give a F about things. I've been <laughs> hearing this from so many women. Be yes. like, and, and they're just like, don't worry, at some point. But so this this comes to the point which uh, uh, we all kind of like, it's a bit of a spicy uh, subject, is about relationships. That, you know, you need to marry Sri Lankan. And I was like, oh. Really? Because I, I don't see myself doing that. I was wondering for, for you uh, ladies, how did that influence your marriage, your relationships or dating? I suppose since I'm old, I better go first. No, I, <laughs> I did the right thing. I was the dutiful daughter. I married a Sri Lankan and a Sri Lankan doctor. So, you know, a perfect uh, match and all of that. Mm. Wonderful person. I had two wonderful kids with him, but it couldn't last because... Actually, culturally, I was not purely Sri Lankan. I think that was it. I think we, right. we had different life experiences. So in the throes of, you know, young love and passionate love, you don't see that. And he truly is a wonderful person. He continues to be in my life and, and all of that. But it just couldn't work out because the way he was socialized and the way he was brought up and the way I was brought up were completely different. So that didn't work out. But for the last 13 years, I've been in a relationship and he's not Sri Lankan. Actually, there was a day, you know, we were, it, it was really nice because uh, my current partner and I actually grew up a couple of miles from each other in South London, right? So we, 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 we traveled the world and then we, you know, we didn't know each other, but, but you could see it was that life experience, the same experience of that we had growing up, maybe that brought us together. Um, so I really went against stereotypes. Um, uh, my current partner hasn't uh, been to university. So, you know, until I met him, I really didn't take anybody who wasn't very highly educated, even seriously, because of the way I had been brought up. 
I was actually looking down on people who hadn't uh, achieved academic, uh, you know, excellence. So, uh, and he really opened my eyes to, you know, what it is to be a person and not to be your job. And he, uh, he had to grow on me, uh, you know, it took time. <laughs> and because, you know, in a relationship, it's the small things that are repeated and build up that break it, really. People think it's the big gestures that make a relationship. No, it isn't. It's all the small things that are repeated again and again. In a way, I broke away from a typical Sri Lankan relationship. Also, it's very difficult, Guni, to, to generalize about culture and relationships. Mm-hmm. I think it's your, your microculture, your, your micro environment and what you build together that, that works. So you yeah. can have people from a completely different culture who matches your core values and then it works. Right. And you could have people seemingly, you know, in the in the traditional Sri Lankan way of matching your horoscope and matching the families. <laughs> but your values are different, so it doesn't work, you know. So so that that's my learning. Of course, I'm not going to tell you all the other dates I've had, okay? That would be <laughs> we would want to know, but <laughs> at 57, I have a big backlog. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> a backlog. Yeah, okay, okay. But then we want to know about Nibarna. <laughs> I was going to say, Gaia, I could be here for days to listen to you storytell, especially about the other dates, which sound really fascinating. Gosh, you've asked me at a point in my life where it feels like dating is a minefield. <laughs> so I'm also looking forward to yeah. the time when things click and you're sort of like, aha, uh-huh, I know exactly that this is where I'm going and this is what I want. And I think part of it is also because growing up in a blended culture in London and being Tamil, that nobody tells you. This is what relationships are, or you know, you do it in secret, you go out on dates, you hang out with guys, and nobody really says this is a healthy relationship, but this is not so healthy. And then I think it comes once you're out of your 20s and you've done all the exciting things and you've had a really life good experience. You feel like, hmm, I don't think I want that for the rest of my life, I want something different, and I think I'm in that space at the moment. Um, having done a bit of that parenting about relationships and being being a therapist helps because you always have to check yourself first before you do anything else that um, I think it's an exciting space but also definitely learned a lot from my 20s and late teens about maybe how I would show up in a relationship and how maybe I've seen it being modelled and families and extended families and be like oh maybe I would tweak this bit here tweak that bit there so I think I'm I'm learning, I'm absorbing at the moment. That's where I'm at. So not so spicy and exciting like Gaia's other stories perhaps that might have been. But I think that what you're saying as well is quite relevant for, you know, this new generation, the younger generation, where we're much more, I think, in tune in and being open to talk, knowing that it's healthy to talk about your feelings and healthy to introspect. And I think that these are things that um I didn't see my parents doing. I didn't see my aunties and uncles and doing this as well. We have also another baggage and background that comes with the with our exposure to the West Western world as well, but also to Western media and, and entertainment, where it's also teaching us also different ways to go about relationships. And so I think now, but now we're, I, I don't know if we are confused because there's too many. <laughs> I think we are confused because there's too many there's too voices. Many things. Like if you look at your parents, they've been, you know, behaving a certain way it's like oh but I don't see myself doing this then you look at media you see like you know your counterparts that are not from the same ethnic backgrounds they behave differently and then you're like well that I I can see why it works but I I'm not familiar to it so you're just confused at the end 
Gaia, we, we need your, we need your intervention. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to come in here because I, I think, I think it is true. You know, I think the current young generation thinks too much. I think you're in your heads. I'm, I'm going to be very frank here. <laughs> you think too much. Relationships. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Guni. Looking at relationships, my parents' relationship, you know, others, uh, I know that's not what I want. I was very sure. So that's when I saw that in my marriage, I didn't take a long time, you know, um, to, to wait it out and, and completely damage myself and, and my children. I didn't do that. And in fact, I, um, I, I knew almost immediately, oh, this is not something I'm going to tolerate. This, this is it, because I've seen it in my parents' marriage. And I thought, oh, I've already been in that marriage. I'm not doing that. So I think it's pretty good to learn from others. But at the same time, I've seen Sri Lankan marriages that have lasted 50 years and they're so loving. And, you know, so, so we can't generalize. This is the first thing. The second is when you're in a relationship, you will evolve. You're not who you are now. So you have to give there is, there's an unknown there. So whoever you are going into a relationship, or whoever he or she is coming into your into this relationship space with you, they are not, you, neither of you are going to remain unchanged. If you do remain unchanged, it's a failure. So I think it's very difficult for you to imagine this perfect person, right? So there is a, an element of let's take a risk and let's try this. Now, the great thing in the 21st century is you don't have to marry everyone you date. So unless, you know, in, when I was young, I had to Thank basically God. marry the guy. I Hallelujah. I couldn't <laughs> date him, right? I I wasn't allowed to date him, so I had to marry him. You know, I'd secretly seen him when we were abroad. But um, so, so I agree with that. But I think you'd have to take a risk and you have to go in there with an open mind. Nobody's going to be this perfect person, but neither are you a perfect person. The issue is, do you have space to grow with each other? Are you matched on the basic values? And I think that that cuts across cultures and so on. In our generation, it's hard. I've, and as a Sri Lankan Tamil woman, I find it hard to connect with other people when you're dating because it's like, do they share the same values? Like, I know what my values are, but then um, on surface level, they do. And then when you date them long enough, you're just like, oh, no. I mean, if you go to traditional household, they say like you're not supposed to be dating you know oh. when you're you're not supposed to be dating you have to go to school be the best because you know yes. you're a disadvantage in the west anyways so you need you need to work three times harder than the the others so don't think about boys because it's not the yeah. time and then you hit 21 and they're just like uh hello it's time to get married so the confusion i understand gaia you're saying because i'm 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 you do not represent our generation. parents but i would like you to acknowledge this that the confusion comes from the parents they're talking to the wrong parent i remember that <laughs> when my son's girlfriend that first girlfriend broke up with him and he was crying i sat and cried with him okay so you're oh. absolutely talking to the wrong parent i mean i only started really dating after i was divorced because i wasn't allowed to date as a teenager <laughs> I like that. After I got but divorced, I gave myself six months just to date. Nothing else, just to date, you know, just to go out on a date. I think we've got we got the message, Guni. We have to just um <laughs> we have to just, uh, just take try. the risk, try <laughs> date risk. around and let the wind take you. I know that Gaia, you were born in Sri Lanka. Uh I don't Nibana, myself and Guni, I don't think we were born in Sri Lanka. Would you ever consider moving back to Sri Lanka? Well, you know, I still have a Sri Lankan passport. I've never changed my nationality. So, oh, 
wow. ultimately, you know, when I retire, that's the only country that will legally have me. <laughs> but uh, um, would I consider going back? Um, yes, I consider. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I've been a global, you know, I've been a world wanderer. You know, I grew up in Sri Lanka, grew up, uh, then I went to the UK, came back to Sri Lanka, 10 years in China, now, now in Switzerland. I have family on four continents in the US, New Zealand, Sri Lanka, here. So yeah, I think where I would go back is where I could be close to family and where I can be close to children. And geography doesn't matter that much to me. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm home wherever I am. So Sri Lanka, maybe uh, somewhere else, maybe somewhere entirely new, maybe. I mean, I carry my home in my, in my mind, in my heart and in my family. So um, maybe uh, but I, I don't uh, say a definite yes, because no, nobody knows what wonderful things uh, are ahead of me in my future. Um, and Nirvana, do you think you'd, you'd ever consider moving there? Good question. I think if you asked me maybe five years ago, I would have probably said a definitive yes. Um, I think I enjoy being rooted in belonging. I think there's nothing quite like that, that I've not felt in Germany or here. I think that sense of belonging and interestingly enough, I think now when I, I think about it, even when I think about going back and maybe doing outreach programs or seeing family, there is a sense of safety attached to it. And I don't know where that's come from over the last um, couple of years. Like, oh, do I feel completely safe? Can I solo travel like I did a few years ago, like I did before? Um, so I think I'm just watching that feeling and see how that pans out. And I don't know where it's come from, but probably a lot more reflections on how safe is it for a Tamil woman to sort of travel from Colombo to Jaffna on her own. Can I really say that? Like maybe I did when I was in Winter's Bliss, they say, when I was um, 25, 26. So, yeah, I think I'd be a bit more cautious about it. But again, I wouldn't rule anything out. If life has taught me anything at this point, and it is that anything is possible. Every two years, you sort of think, oh, never thought that would happen, but it's happened. So, Goody, what about you, Goody? Quick, quick answers, no. But I would definitely make it as my, like a base where I would spend time with, you know, with my family, my, my parents, etc. But I would not move because I don't have that independence that I have. And that for me is very important. But that's this whole thing where, you know, you walk in the street, people look at you differently. And, you know, you saw it when we were in Sri Lanka. Everyone looks at you. And for me, especially in London, where it's the opposite, people don't care about you. For me, that's a bit hard to, to take. So I wouldn't. But um, again, if things change in Sri Lanka and, and women feel empowered to, you know, travel around safely, why not? But as of now, with the current situation, no. What about you? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, I think I have similar experiences in Malaysia where like, you know, even if, you, if you're an Indian woman and if you look remotely like a woman, like any anything you wear, you would just looked at, whether it's, and it, it doesn't come from a, another Indian person or brown person. It's either, even a Malay or Chinese person. So in that sense, I feel like, yeah, whatever, like I can handle this. Um, but of course, you know, it's the familiarity part, but do you, do you f- know this area? Do you, do you feel secure? Can you protect yourself? Um, yeah, that that part I'm not sure, but um, in the, the same same sentiment is, I love it when I go to Sri Lanka. Like there's a sense of groundedness that you feel, and I feel so connected to to like nature, to the environment. Similar to you, Guni, I think I would want to make it a base, maybe, but maybe not um, a permanent home. I think Malaysia is still for me <laughs> like a permanent home. But yeah, if it improves, definitely. If there's an easy pathway to do that, then yeah. 
I think that would be a nice place to be. And to close off our our conversation, what is the one change you would you would like to see for Sri Lanka and its diaspora? What I would really love to see is the government taking accountability and I think something that we've spoken about a lot today which I'm quite grateful for is also that there's reparative measures that accountability is taking but then there's also a way to start life or to reconnect life to what it was like and for me I think that's always been dialogue I'm biased with my profession but I think being able to talk here but also communities generations being able to dialogue with each other and find a sense of safety to be able to be playful, explorative and connect again. I think that would be something I'd like to see in my lifetime. I'd like uh, the whole population of Sri Lanka uh, within the country and the diaspora to participate more in our democratic political processes. Um, so that we are more aware of what's happening in the country. We hold all politicians to account and that builds on what Nirvana says about accountability, not to turn the other cheek, not to turn the other way when things are going wrong, that we should understand and participate and have our voices uh, heard in all aspects of our life and not leave the governance of our country just to politicians. It's too important. And an important part of that is the protection of human rights, accountability for wrongs done in the past, and to prevent wrongs being done to the people in the future. And to have good governance with uh, good management and, and less corruption. So it's all about us all participating. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Gaia and Nibana. I think today I've learned from both of you, because you're both in the healthcare space and you do, Nibana, you work closely with like the Sri Lankan Tamil community and even Gaia from your own experience as a journalist and then a doctor, it's really made me realize that I, I am not as active in the community in the way that I could be. I participate when it, it suits me, but then it's not really an active and, and a consistent effort. And that's something I think I can take away and then um, take action on to be more consistent because that's what you both are doing in your own ways. And I'm, I'm glad that you were able to share your insight and your experiences with us and for all the listeners so that we can actually um, send that message because we've all come from different backgrounds. And so seeing that we can all take a bit, a bit more of an effort if we, you know, if you're connected to the, to the cause. Right. Right. And it, it starts from dialogue as well as Nirvana said is talking and, and having open conversation, uncomfortable conversation, receiving feedback, even if it's harsh ones um, and, and taking accountability. I think that that's a great message also to our listeners. Sri Lanka is very complex, but it has its, you know, flaws and beauties. But at the end of the day, if we come together and understanding that, you know, we're not perfect, but taking accountability in what we're doing, we can move forward. And hopefully there's a better future ahead for Sri Lanka, especially in this current time. And I'd like really to thank you both, uh, Nirbana and uh, Gaia, for, for taking the time to have this conversation with us to, to celebrate our heritage as a Sri Lankan, it's a great way also for us to start our new season as a dot of the podcast. And in, in some way, you gave us um, somewhat of a blessing to start and, and hopefully we, we continue in this high note. So thank you very much for your, for your presence and participation. Thank you. It was, it was really fun being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and select that follow or subscribe button. Till then, stay well. Thank you.